AI has captured the world's attention and imagination and will change nearly every aspect of how businesses are built and run. Business leaders will need to rethink their architectures and adapt to remain competitive. Join us on Cross Validated as we speak to practitioners and builders who are making AI deployments in the enterprise a reality. We'll explore the challenges and opportunities of this transformative technology and discover how it is being used to drive innovation, efficiency, and growth. We decided very consciously to take the approach of, we don't have the very best models and that's not what the dimension we're gonna compete on. So we're just gonna open source really good ones and try to undercut the advantages that other folks have. Undercut OpenAI slash Microsoft, undercut Google, which I think is a brilliant strategy, but Meta's not thinking about their models as a direct revenue driver for them, so much as a way to equalize the playing field more, which I think is a really savvy way for them to play it. The other, the open source mod, foundation model startups like the Mistrals of the world, I think it's very unclear what the actual business model will look like for open source AI. And I'm not sure there is a good one, honestly. Welcome to Cross Validated, a podcast with practitioners and builders who are making AI in the enterprise a reality. I'm your host, Pauline Yang. I'm a partner at Altimeter Capital, a lifecycle technology investment firm based in Silicon Valley. Today, we have a special guest, Rob Taves, who's a partner at Radical Ventures, an AI-focused venture capital firm based in the Bay Area and in Toronto. He's also a contributor to Forbes, where he writes about the big picture in AI, spoke at the recent TED AI conference, and is generally a thought leader in AI. And this is a really special episode in that normally we interview practitioners and ask them how their companies are using AI. But 2023 has proven to be such a dynamic year in AI. End of year episode to bring on someone that I talk to about AI a lot, which is Rob, and just discuss what, what's happened in 2023, the early signs of trends that we've seen, and talk about 2024, some of the predictions that we have, and reflect on all the changes that's happened this year. And so thanks, Rob, for coming onto the podcast. I'm really excited about the conversation today. Would love to just start with your quick background. Absolutely. Yeah, very excited to be here. Looking forward to the conversation. My quick background, I'm a partner at Radical Ventures. Radical is a VC firm, totally focused on it with close ties to top AI researchers like Jeff Hinton and Fei Wee and others. I, I lead Radical's Bay Area office. I joined Radical a few years ago from another VC firm, Highland Capital, where I led Highland's AI investing for a few years. Before I got into VC, I worked in the world of autonomous vehicles for a long time. Most recently, I, I helped lead the strategy team at Zooks, which was an autonomous vehicle startup based in the Bay Area that Amazon acquired a few years ago for a little bit over a billion dollars. And before Zooks, I did a brief stint in the world of policy. Uh, I worked in the White House toward the end of President Obama's second term, working on autonomous vehicle and AI policy and regulatory issues. I did grad school at Harvard and started my career at Bain & Company in consulting. I really appreciate that. Thank you. So I thought we'd start off with, with just a few stats on where 2023 funding trends have been. According to PitchBook, funding for AI-related startups surpassed $69 billion in 2023, where OpenAI and Thropic Cohere, where I know Radical is an investor, accounted for a large portion of that number. 
And so we'd love to just get your perspective on why do you think that is? Why do you think the foundation model layer has attracted so much funding? And what do you think that means for setting up 2024 in terms of competition? Yeah, no, it, it has been a wild year indeed in early stage VCA in, in the world of AI. You're totally right. As you said, the lion's share of venture capital dollars in AI continue to flow to companies building at the model layer, OpenAI and Anthropic and Cohere and others, as you mentioned. And I think a lot of it is just, well, to start with, there's the obvious reality that building models is just so capital intensive that the leading companies need to raise many billions of dollars primarily to, to fund the computes to train these models, current leading research methods to train high-performing large language models and other foundation models is just incredibly, incredibly compute intensive. And everyone's heard about the GPU shortage. None of these companies can get their hands on enough, on enough chips to, to train the models that they want. So a big part of it is just the, you know, kind of the stark economic reality of what it takes in 2023 to build the world leading models. And I also think there's a bit of the oversimplified trajectory of new technology cycles as like infrastructure build out precedes mm -hmm. application developments. And we are certainly still in that infrastructure phase in the world of AI where the core foundations are still being put in place to support a broader AI economy and the kind of the core intelligence that will power a lot of future applications is still being built. So. I think the massive investment in foundation model builders is reflective of that. And I think as those companies mature, we'll start to see more of an ecosystem of applications built on top of them. In, in terms of what the trend means for 2024 and kind of what the funding landscape looks like, I mean, I expect massive, massive amounts of dollars to continue pouring into the model builders in 2024. I don't think that's going to stop. I feel confident OpenAI is going to raise another massive round in 2024. Anthropic will raise more. Cohere will raise more. Inflection will raise more. The, those round sizes will probably just continue to get larger. So I think that's not going to change. But I do think that the application layer is going to really mature and start to proliferate in a lot of interesting new directions. Like when LLMs first burst onto the scene a year or a year and a half ago, there are so many possible applications, so many ideas for ways you can use this technology that everyone has had and has talked about. But to this point, there really aren't that many great killer applications out there that are in use widely. You know, I think that just reflects the reality that it's hard to build applications on a new technology stack to get widespread adoption, especially in the enterprise. And so today, I think coding is one LLM application that already has gotten pretty widespread adoption with GitHub Copilot and others, but there aren't very many other than that. So I, I do think that 2024 is going to be a big year for the application layer for companies that are not building their own models necessarily, but are taking models from OpenAI, for instance, and others and building applications on top of them that are not just the so-called state wrappers, but that are actually really thick, complex products or platforms that create value in different ways using the underlying models. Yeah, that was such a helpful framework for so many different things that I wanted to talk about today. And so let's dive into a few different areas. I think starting with that, this point that you made that you think that next year is going to bring even more funding to these small group of companies, independent companies, but in even larger scale. And I think one thing that's been really interesting to notice, I'd say 
The framework that I have for foundation model companies is similar to cloud providers, right? And so the four big ones you call it are Azure within Microsoft, AWS within Amazon, GCP within Google and Oracle, OCI within Oracle. And I think one thing that's interesting is that these are independent companies. I'm using air quotes so that the, the audience can't see. I don't have the math as to how much billion, but so much of the funding had come from corporate. And in particular, these sort of four companies, plus NVIDIA, which is the main chip provider for this set of companies. And, and what I've seen is sort of that there's, it seems like they're starting to find their sort of niche, right? OpenAI really has focused on ChatGPT, Anthropic has more focused on the API layers, especially through Bedrock. Inflection is focusing on Pi, which is the personal assistant. Cohere is focusing more on the enterprise workflows. How do you think that those differences will compound in 2024 as the sort of competition, maybe in terms of number of companies won't get bigger, but each of these companies will just have more amounts of capital and have to figure out, do I spend more on just compute? Do I start building products? What, what's your thought on that? Yeah, it is a really good question. I think the, what, the analogy to the cloud market structure is, is a helpful one. I think it's the right way to think about it. Cloud is not winner take all. There's not one dominant mm -hmm. provider, but there also is not and never will be hundreds of companies providing cloud services. It's just so capital intensive and and expensive to stand up these data centers and keep them running year after year. And, and I think providing foundation model capabilities, it has a similar dynamic. Likewise, I don't think it will ever be winner take all, but I also don't think there will be, most surely won't ever be hundreds. The exact number in the, in the world of LMs, like, is it four, is it six, is it 10, is it 12 is, is hard to say. I think there's, I think it's likely there will be more LOM providers than there are big cloud providers, just because the. The number of, there's so many different use cases and, and sources of differentiation, but mm. in terms of how, how that differentiation starts to happen in 2024, I'm honestly not, sh I'm not sure how much specialization will happen within the next year. I mean, you mentioned that inflection, you know, there are, there are some foundation model providers with leading LLM teams who have already kind of the sounding ethos is more oriented to a specific application. So inflection, you mentioned really is oriented around this like chatbot, personal companion persona for consumers. Character AI is another one that like they're building right. world-class models. They have a world-class team, but they're not trying to build what OpenAI is building. They're trying to build, you know, the, the chatbot personal companion experience for consumers. So I think there, there are some like those, but among the kind of OpenAI anthropic cohere cohort, I just think the market is so big and still so nascent, I, I would guess that there won't be really clear, sharp dividing lines in, by 2024, I guess to zoom way out, like basically everything that every business transaction and every interaction that humans have pretty much in, involves language. And so much of that is going to be automated in the years ahead. And so like addressable market is so massive and there are so many different use cases within that, that I think they'll all remain pretty horizontal and, and all have success doing that. With that said, there obviously are differences between them and their value propositions and Anthropic, for instance, has been and can continue to lean into their value proposition around really safe, responsible AI, this kind of mm -hmm. unique constitutional AI approach for 
which will be very important for some customers and will compel them to go with, with Anthropic. And Cohere has really leaned into this vision of being the most enterprise-grade, enterprise-ready offering, and that will matter to some folks. And OpenAI obviously has a ton of momentum and advantages in terms of being the, the most well-funded team, the biggest team, the highest performing models currently. They really, they're the incumbents in a lot of ways. It'll be interesting to listen to this the year from now and see what happens. I, my best guess is that they all stay fairly horizontal. Hmm. There's also a totally separate group of companies that we haven't talked about yet that I want to bring into the conversation, which is, of course, open source companies. Yep. Um, and you have, I'd say the probably, arguably the leading open source model is Llama 2 which is from Meta, Mistral, which is a French company with researchers that have come out of Meta and Google DeepMind, actually just recently announced their Series A funding at a $2 billion valuation and, and have recently also put out pretty impressive models around mixture of experts. And so I think there's a broader question about what is the commoditization. Yep question around these models, what is the role that open source plays and closed source plays? And so how, how would you think about where we are in 2024 in terms of the commoditization of the model and the role that open source plays in, in that ecosystem? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. This is maybe, I've made a bit of a spicy take or perspective on this. So I guess the different companies have different motivations and incentives here. So I think Meta, I think, is a very different beast when it comes to open source and some of the startups. I think Meta has basically decided very consciously to take the approach of, we don't have the very best models and that's not the dimension we're going to compete on. So we're just going to open source really good ones and try to undercut the advantages that other folks have. Undercut OpenAI slash Microsoft, undercut Google, which I think is a brilliant strategy. So, I, but I think they're, Meta's not thinking about their models as a direct revenue driver for them so much as, as a way to equalize the playing field more, which I think is, is a really savvy way for them to play it. The other, the open source mod, foundation model startups like the Mistrals of the world, I think it's very unclear what the actual business model will look like for open source AI. And I'm not sure there is a good one, honestly. I think there's the, the most common narrative is you work with enterprises to help them deploy models, you customize the models for them, et cetera. That was the narrative that Stability AI had, which was kind of last year's Darwin open source foundation model builder. And that really hasn't worked for the endless. And obviously Stability has had a lot of other problems as a company, not directly related to their business model, but I think Stability has shown that there's not a really clear, compelling source of product market fit for open source AI models. You know, I just, I don't know if one exists. And so I will be interested to see if Mistral continue to open source their very best models. I would not be surprised if they eventually end up moving in the direction of an open AI, Anthropic, et cetera, with, with more of an open AI than year where like they are still open sourcing some powerful models, but the very best ones, the most advanced ones end up remaining proprietary and, and they monetize that way. That seems to me the most plausible path for them in terms of building a business. I think the best models will continue to be closed source. I, th I think the gap between open source and closed source models will continue to persist. I think the very best models will continue to come out of places like OpenAI and Anthropic. There's a lot of enthusiasm about the importance and power of open source software more broadly and how important it's been right. over the decades. And it, that can kind of sometimes 
get intertwined with a libertarian view of the world, like software should be free and there shouldn't be any regulation and so forth, which I, again, I think that there's like a very credible view of the world. Enthusiasm for open source for those reasons doesn't necessarily, isn't necessarily the same thing as enthusiasm for open source because it's going to be a great business. And so I think some of that inflation has happened and will be interesting to see play out. I, obviously, many folks are more bullish on open source as a commercial opportunity as well. So I could be totally wrong, but that's, that's kind of how I've thought about things. Yeah, it is interesting. I, I've certainly been thinking about this a lot in that because Meta is a public company and has shareholders to answer to, Mistral has raised from more traditional venture capital firms. Investors want returns, right? And it, your, your earlier point that the foundation model companies will continue to raise large, large amounts of capital is necessitated because the next model runs are going to be in the billions of dollars range. Yep. And I think our estimate for OpenAI GPT-5 run is, is in the two to three billion range. And yep. I think there is a question of, as Meta continues to spend money on compute to train Llama 3 and Llama 4, and to your point, I, I agree with you that I think they're not expecting a huge revenue or any revenue return on that. The question is, at what scale of compute investments do shareholders say, this is not a good ROI for you to spend yeah. this much capital on this project that will never get you revenue potentially? And to your point, I think Mistral can always make the decision to close source their models, their next models. And so you mentioned also that you think that the gap between open source and closed source will persist. Let me ask you a more specific question. I think on Twitter, there was a great chart that showed that the gap right now is about a year. Yeah. Going into 2024, do you think that gap of a year increases or decreases? I think by the end of 2024, it will have increased. And I, I think the, the point you made is a really good one, an important one, and, and I think is a, is a big part of the reason why. Like to your point, at this point, Meta is, I think, their strategy of open sourcing model, devoting some resources to training and releasing great open source models is generally favorably viewed and mm -hmm. strategically pretty sound. But to train Llama 3 and then Llama 4 and then Llama 5, they it ends up costing them billions of dollars in cash, to your point. Like, at some point, that, that investment, that ROI calculus will no longer make sense, as you said. And so I think that's another reason why there's just relentless economic forces moving in the direction of if you invest this much into creating any sort of asset, including an AI model, you need to be able to have a very clear, straightforward business plan for how you monetize it. And the, that business model doesn't exist for open source AI models. So it's hard for me to see open source players catching it up. And, and I know, according to some calculations, the gap has been closing, but I do think it's one of these things where it's like the classic fast follower phenomenon and technology where once something is accomplished, That's even true. if the company doesn't publish a detailed research paper about it, which OpenAI used to do like with GPT-3, but obviously has stopped since GPT-3. But even if they don't publicly re reveal all the methods around how they did, did it, these things tend to leak out and seep out and folks leave OpenAI. And even just the, the demonstration that it's possible, I think motivates others. And so you see kind of a, a fast following phenomenon occur, but I think it's very different to actually leapfrog the closed source models and, and start right. coming up with new methods that the leading researchers at these labs aren't doing. And 
that piece of it, I don't see happening by the open source builders. So let me push on that because one thing, you and I are both at NeurIPS right now. So hello from NeurIPS. And, and I think one of the big topics that I've heard Jeff Dean talk about, Chris Ray talk about, is this idea of non-attention beyond transformer architectures, right? And one of the big issues with the transformer architecture is that it scales quadratically, which means that it's really expensive to scale. And one of the potential benefits of going beyond transformers is the ability to keep performance. We haven't scaled that up yet, but keep performance while being able to, you know, scale subquadratically. And so do you think that that's an area where open source could potentially leapfrog closed source because of these new architectures? Are, Are we so past the scaling laws for transformers and it's been so optimized that it's going to be hard for any other architecture to catch up? Yeah, it's a, it is a great question. It's a topic I love thinking about because I think you're right that no dominant technology paradigm lasts forever. And every high-performing AI model today is built using transformers, but that's not going to be the case forever. There, there will be an architecture that surpasses the transformer. I don't know if it's going to happen immediately. I mean, there, there has been, there have been efforts for a year, but basically it's almost since the transformer ascended in 2017, 2018, when I was using birds and kind of gained this position of primacy, there have been research efforts to improve upon it. And there are so many transformer variations and derivatives and so forth that, that try to more than anything, try to address this quadratic scaling issue. And none of them have really worked to this point. There's a lot of Really interesting work out of Chris Ray's lab, who you mentioned, but none of it has been shown to be able to scale well the way the transformers scale, which is really, you know, more than anything, the core source of their incredible capabilities. But I haven't seen anything that's directly on the horizon that looks like it's going to unseat the transformer tomorrow or even next year in 2024. I do think it's something that's going to happen eventually, but I don't know if it'll fundamentally disrupt the open source, closed source dynamics that we were talking about. Like, and I think this is one of the most likely vectors of disruption for a company like OpenAI. If there is some totally new architecture that entails like a totally different skill set, there's a totally different set of people who are at the, at the frontiers of the field and all the great folks at OpenAI. But even in that world, it still feels to me most likely that the best models and the best model builders, there will be these kind of market forces that lead them to be closed as opposed to open. Not that there won't be amazing open source models and not that open source isn't like an incredibly important part of the ecosystem that, that seeds all sorts of innovation, but just talking about the very highest performing models, it feels to me like even if there is some next generation architecture, it is most likely to remain proprietary, the, the best performing versions of it. And then I, I also want to mention just one of this kind of tangentially related to this, but a little spiel to go off on. I, I do think uh, it's really fascinating to think about next generation architectures and what they could look like. And along with sort of the fascination with model architecture, there is also such an obsession and fixation today on computes as a resource and the compute shortage and, and how difficult it is right. to, to access GPUs. The, relative to those two, I think what is actually underappreciated still somehow in terms of its importance in all this is the role of data and the quality of data that you have and the, and the way that you curate your data and feed it into models. The, the 
dominant approach today is still like, let's take the entire internet and train on it, or let's take our organization's entire corpus of data and train on it. And the details around the data continue to be kind of an afterthought, which is crazy given that like data is the new oil is such a truism, but I think there's too much focus on the volume, on simply the volume of data, as opposed to the details of the data's composition. So I do, I, I think relative to architectural changes, new architectural tweaks, which surely we will see in 2024, I think innovations on the data side of things are going to be so much more impactful in terms of driving improvements in model performance and also improvements in model efficiency, because you can train higher performing models on less data and more compute efficiently. Let, let's talk about that because even at NeurIPS this week, Jeff Dean, who, you know, was really the, one of the primary authors behind Gemini, which is Google's set of, of language models, was saying, for example, that they haven't really worked on pre-training models with video data. Basically the same day, there was also another researcher that was saying, yes, but at the same time, the quality of video data is not the same as a quality of text data, right? One trillion tokens of video data is less good or less useful than a trillion tokens of text data. And I think one thing that has been a question in the research community is when do we run out of good data to train on? And then there's a question of is synthetic data good enough? Let's set that aside for now. But do you think that in 2024, we will run out of training data? Yeah, no, it, it, another really interesting topic. This was in my predictions in that I wrote in Forbes for 2023. One of the predictions was that we were going to start running out of training data. And I think we are going down that path. I mean, we haven't run out yet. And to your question, I don't think we're going to run out in 2024, but it is becoming a more scarce resource for sure. Because if you think about the, the totality, I guess, starting with the language side, the totality of all the books, scientific articles, news articles, websites, et cetera, that have ever been produced by humans, it is a finite amount and it's like a massive amount. But when you're talking about kind of LLM scale data sets, it's not infinite. And so I do think we're approaching the limits of kind of the, the, ease, the low hanging fruit, the easy to access language data to train on. I think there are plenty of clever workarounds and solutions that folks are thinking about and actively working on. And one big one is like the vast majority of digital data in the world is not publicly indexable. It's private data, like behind particular organizations, silos. And it's, I think it's something like like 4% of the world's data is indexable by Google. And you know, the other 96% is private. So unlocking more and more of that, I think is a really key vector. And You've, you see this with like a couple months ago, for instance, OpenAI announced this like data partnerships program and the, the motivation behind it was pretty transparent, which is like, let's get as many organizations as we can to convince, let's convince them to share their data with us. And there are different ways that that can be advantageous for the particular organization. But for, from OpenAI's perspective, the benefit is just getting more high quality training data that's, that's currently locked behind these organization silos. So I think that that's one dimension. There's some interesting work around next generation OCR mm. to basically unlock the trillions of tokens that are in like old books that haven't yet been digitized or like old science articles that, that aren't yet in digital format. Basically like coming up with clever solutions to turn more of the written content from human history into 
uh, a format that's friendly and, and digestible by LLMs. So I think that will unlock another, you know, couple trillion tokens or whatever it is. I've heard some interesting discussion around like linguistic content every day is created by humans in the form of verbal communications and meetings like this podcast right, right. now. For instance, think of all the meetings are in every day uh, across so many different organizations. And most of that is not recorded. And uh, this podcast, maybe this podcast, obviously they recorded, probably will be transcribed, but most meetings are not recorded and transcribed and kind of kept for posterity. So I've heard some interesting speculation around ways to capture more of that, like verbal meeting data and turn that into trainable data for LLM. So I think there's, there's a ton of like interesting strategies, but, but I do think like before long, we are going to start running out of, in then it'll create interesting opportunities in terms of what fundamental breakthroughs are needed to kind of bring us past that barrier. You mentioned synthetic data. I think that's one big promising avenue of research, although there's still a lot of questions about how well it will work conceptually. Uh, and then I do think like, you know, some of the questions around fundamental architectures become relevant again, because if you compare AI learning to human learning, like humans are so much more efficient at learning in terms of data input right. compared to LLMs. Like the classic example is given, if you show like a three-year-old two kangaroos, then they know how to identify a kangaroo, whereas you have to show an AI model, like thousands and thousands of label examples. So there must be more efficient ways to learn than our current methods that require like every single piece of language that any human has ever written. And so I do think eventually there will be more fundamental breakthroughs that enable AIs to learn just a lot more efficiently on, on data that's readily available. Yeah, I'd say it's definitely one of my predictions that I think we saw, I think this week that OpenAI partnered with Axel Springer, which is a, a global news publisher. And I think yep. more of that sort of partnerships are going to happen. And I think that's certainly a way that data providers can monetize in a way that is new to them. I certainly think they need it given, I think there's going to be disruption in the ads and sort of potentially subscription business model. And so certainly I think that's going to be a big trend of 2024. I want to switch gears and talk a little bit about applications because, you know, you started to mention coding and GitHub Copilot. I would argue that the most successful application of generative AI has been ChatGPT and they've crossed a billion dollars of, of, of revenue or if you break out the API revenue, you know, still pretty close to that. Yeah. And certainly, you know, this three sort of enterprise use cases that we hear most about are AI coding, customer service, that has been a big area that we've been spending time on internally here, and content summarization. So one of the debates that's happened in general AI is the value creation between incumbents and startups. So as you look into 2024, and as this war between incumbents and startups play out. What do you think we'll see in the world of application? How do you think that'll play out more broadly in 2024? I think as you've mentioned and, and uh, as others, I think have rightly commented, AI is a technology paradigm shift whose structure does favor incumbents more than many similarly sized technology shifts. I think that a lot of the big tech players are well positioned to 
capture a lot of the value that AI creates in the years ahead. And, and I don't think it's going to be a force that will totally disrupt a Google or an Amazon fundamentally. So I do think incumbents are well positioned, but I also think that there are plenty of opportunities for startups to emerge and win and build giant standalone next generation businesses. I think areas where startups are particularly well positioned are areas that involve net new workflows or transforming workflows in a fundamental way, or even kind of net new product conceptualizations that aren't natural extensions of existing products. And so I think like spreadsheets, for instance, or making slides, like there, there's an active startup ecosystem and well-funded startups going after some of those categories, reimagining the, the spreadsheet, reimagining kind of PowerPoint. I think I'm less bullish on those categories. Honestly, I think the Microsofts of the world have a really strong advantage and are going to be able to feather in AI capabilities into their existing platforms. And they just obviously have massive distributional advantages, but I think net new experiences, net new workflows that, that maybe could only have been possible with AI. I think new startups will be much better positioned there. And I think it honestly, I think it's yet to be seen or it's, it's still TBD if LLM powered software development fits in the, which of those two buckets it fits into more. I mean, I think the first iteration or kind of the first generation of LLM fueled coding, the GitHub copilot form factor is not that radical of a break from how software development has been done in the past. But I do think that we're in the very, very early innings of seeing how AI will transform software development. And I think GitHub copilot as it exists today will look very primitive in, in five or 10 years when we think about how LLMs have changed, how software gets written and, and deployed. I think startups are probably in a good position to think from first principles and challenge long-held assumptions and be creative about how producing software can be fundamentally transformed using these, this new set of tools we have at our disposal. And so I think software development may, as one of the few categories that you mentioned is kind of from the center in terms of killer applications for LLMs, I think right. software development may prove to be one of these categories where startups with like a really disruptive kind of blank sheet vision of, of what coding can look like in the future may be able to actually emerge and be successful. Can you give an example of what you think maybe one of the most exciting new workflows are that, that you think could be really interesting for startups to go after? I think one example or one category of examples as tools that can automate really meaningful swaths of knowledge work in different categories. It's kind of become a little cliche of the like copilot for X, copilot for Y, but I think like platforms that can automate enormous chunks of what lawyers do today or automate enormous chunks of what tax experts do today or, or even data scientists. I think those kinds of tools will in the not to do so future will eat giant chunks of what lawyers or tax attorneys or, or data scientists do, and as a result, free up those highly educated knowledge workers to focus on the more creative and important high value aspects of their jobs. And, and so I, I do think in at least some of those cases, there will be an opportunity to, to for, for the human to hand off a lot of that fairly grunt formulaic work, which today accounts for most of how they spend their hours and devote themselves in very different ways to kind of the, the, the less formulaic parts of the job. And, and so I think in some of those categories, I can envision really different transformative 
applications being built that don't have a clear analog in today's software stack and that aren't, aren't easy to just layer on an existing software product, but that will become very central to how those occupations carry out their work. Yeah. I'd say the one that I always go to is the one that character.ai is going after, which is AI friend. You know, I don't yeah. think any of us even two years ago would have said, yeah, you can hold a two hour conversation with an AI chatbot and and yet it's happening. I, I would say I, I broadly very much agree with your framework. I'd say the only other comment that I would make is I think when people talk about incumbents, people think about Microsoft and Google and Amazon, and those are formidable competitors for sure. But one area of incumbents that we've been thinking about are more legacy players that have very large operational footprints, whether it's in customer support and take PayPal as an example, I think they've spent something like $2 billion a year in customer support and operations or about 8% of net revenue. And so if they can even cut that by 50% and get a 4% margin increase, that's meaningful, right, for companies that are trading on a net income or earnings basis. And so that's one area that incumbents that I say we're thinking a lot more about. I know that you spoke about GPUs and the bottleneck in TED AI, and I really enjoyed the talk. I'm curious, you know, one prediction that we have going into 2024 is that the bottleneck shifts from actually having the physical GPUs to actually how do you install them in data centers, allow them to be used efficiently. And so the bottleneck is more of the power transformers, the cooling devices, the physical real estate that is needed to house these, these racks of GPUs. I'm curious, do you think that 2024, the GPU rush will abate and by how much? Or do you think that this is just a trend that will continue into, into next year? Yeah, I, I think the GPU shortage is very much a moment in time thing. Like it feels all consuming and the AI world is really fixated on it for good reason. Any company that is building big models, like this is their constraint today in 2023, being able to access GPUs, but it is, it, it definitely will pass. I think it's like any supply and demand dynamic, a ton more supply is coming online to service the demand. There, there's obviously, there's longer lead times than for many products, just given the complicated supply chain and so forth. But, but I do think the GPU shortage certainly will ease in 2020 and will it be completely addressed in 2024 or in 2025, like exact timelines are hard to predict, but definitely I think that this chip scarcity will abate. And I think it'll be a really good thing for the AI industry overall, because it is a shame that currently like there's more innovation that could be happening. There's quicker execution and quicker shipping that could be happening if companies could just access the hardware that they needed to. I think it'll be a good thing in terms of like opening up the gates of more activity, more innovation. I also think that like the GPU shortage, and, and I guess in, in addition to kind of NVIDIA ramping up its production, you know, it's, there are, there are alternatives that are coming online and it's just, it's inevitable that NVIDIA's like dominant grip on the market is not going to last forever as amazing of a company as it is. So, you know, AMD recently came out with their GPUs, which are early reviews that I've heard are promising now in terms of the, in terms of the chips capabilities. Intel has come out with chips that I think are, you know, people tend to probably discount Intel as a player in the AI accelerator market, but I think they are coming out with, they're going to be coming out with chips that are increasingly competitive. 
And then on the inference side of things, like I think inference is going to get more and more efficient and it's going to become more and more viable to do inference on a wide range of commoditized hardware, including CPUs. So I definitely think the insane bottleneck that we're all obsessed with right now is going to ease. And I think it will lead to, like, I think there's been some kind of funny, unnatural behavior in the market this year as a result of the shortage. There are companies who basically function as GPU resellers and there are different narratives that, that they have in different ways they position themselves. But there's a, there, there's a whole cohort of startups who have seen incredible top line revenue growth this year because they basically, basically everyone will pay a lot of money to get access to GPUs. These companies are reselling them. And I think that those, that revenue growth is going to slow next year. And not all of those companies are going to prove to have something really valuable that they've built on top of the GPU access that makes them durable businesses. So I think that category is going to come back down to earth. I think the insane revenue growth, some of the upstart cloud providers like CoreWeave has seen is, is not, the revenue growth won't be sustainable. That doesn't mean that CoreWeave won't figure it out and, and become a, a great business. But I do think a lot of these dynamics were the product of this somewhat artificial scarcity and, and thing. it does feel inevitable to me that things kind of realign in the next 12 to 18 months. Yeah, I certainly do think for those GPU players, it's a race to actually build software and, and value add on top of it. Yeah. And yeah. they've, they've struck this amazing gold mine. And now I think that the clock is ticking in terms of building other things on top of GPUs. And so I exactly. would agree with that. I, I probably have a, a, a different view on the GPUs, which is I think 2024 is probably not going to be the year that we yeah. see abatement, M mostly because I think just people are still in so much of discovery mode. And I think the big labs to our earlier conversation still need so many chips to train the, these next generations of models that I think next year will still be in a bit of a bind. But I think 2025, I think it'll definitely loosen up. And I think the other component is, I think there's a lot of work that's being done into how, in terms of how to make the GPUs that we currently do have more efficient and sort of whether that's when you're not using it, how do you allow other customers or other companies to access it or other unique ways that we can make them more efficient. So I think that'll also help going into 2025. Well, with that, let's go into rapid fire. First rapid fire question. What do you think is the definition of what is your definition of AGI? And when do you think we'll get it? That is a yeah, hard hitting rapid fire question to start with. I think AGI is an overloaded term that, that, that there isn't a good definition for. I actually wrote a whole article in Forbes last year about how the concept of AGI is oversimplified to the point of meaninglessness um, and it just means a lot of different things. But I do think the discussion around, like, I think there are real, there are fundamental problems with the term AGI, but I think the discussion around runaway superintelligence and when it might happen is still important to have because there's doers on one side and there's accelerationists on the other side. It's almost become this like polarized, almost like politicized debate. Like in some ways it reminds me of the of the Don't Look Up movie. It's just like a caricature mm -hmm. of like what politics looks like in the U.S. today is like, sadly what the discourse I feel like is kind of starting to become. But I mean, I think no one knows for sure how, like what the growth curve looks like for AI's capabilities from here on out. And it, it's possible it will plateau. It's possible it will continue to exponentially grow. But there's at least a scenario in which it does be, AI does become far more capable than 
humans in the not so distant future, like in the next few years. I don't, I wouldn't necessarily say it's likely, but it's certainly non-zero. And so I think people that are, they're more on the worried side and are, are taking that as a more serious possibility. I think it's a very good thing that, that there are people that are diving in on it, thinking through the implications of it, you know, raising the alarm about it. I think it's healthy and important to have that line of discourse and it may not come to pass, but it may. And so I think, I think it's a good thing that we're thinking about and talking about super intelligence, AGI, however we want to frame it. You know, I think like dismissing that line of thinking altogether or being dismissive of like, or, or labeling people who are worried about runaway AI capabilities as like doomers and technology pessimists and so forth, I think totally misses the points and like eliminates a lot of nuance in the discussion. It kind of falls into this like reductive ad hominem attack. So I, th I think it is a really important discussion. I'm glad that folks are having it. I think nobody knows for sure. The, the only way that you can be positive that someone is wrong on this topic is if they're 100% sure that they're right, because really nobody knows, but I think it's a right. good thing that we're talking about it and, and that we're worrying about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Second rapid fire question. What's your mental framework on AI regulation? Yeah, it's an important topic. This year, obviously, it was a year that the rubber hit the road in terms of regulators getting serious about Europe has passed the AI Act. Like as, as usual, Europe is ahead of, is uh, faster than other geographies in terms of passing regulation, just as we saw with GDPR. But in the U.S., regulators and lawmakers are obviously starting to get a lot more serious about it. Folks in Congress are talking about it. The White House is very fixated on it. I think it'll probably be another couple of years at least until Congress actually peace passes like a piece of comprehensive legislation around AI. U.S. Congress takes a while to, to get things done, but I think it'll happen eventually. And the White House obviously did is doing everything it can using its executive powers. If it remains to be seen how much that EO will matter, if at all, if a different party is in the White House next year, then the, you know, the first thing they'll do on day one is just get rid of it and, and it won't have any impact. Um, and even if Biden does have a second term, you know, it wasn't that. There wasn't anything in there that was that transformative or disruptive, but certainly it's something that regulators are thinking about very actively now. I, I write a column in Forbes about big picture themes in AI. And every year I write a column with 10 predictions for the world of AI for the following year. So I'm just now working on my 10 predictions for 2024, which I'm going to publish next week, but a few of them, uh, two of them relate to regulation. So I'll, I'll give like a sneak peek and mention that. Yeah, would love that. And then why don't we do another podcast? We can see whether or not these actually came to pass or not. But so these are more kind of specific regulatory issues that I face is that are kind of li live questions. The first is around IP and copyright. And the issue that a lot of people are aware of is foundation models are trained on the entire internet, which is most, most of the most well-known foundation models today are trained on a ton of data that the model builders don't have legal rights to either language that was scraped from books and articles and so forth, or images that were created by artists. So th there's a really big looming question of copyright and are, you know, is OpenAI, is Stable Diffusion, is Midjourney, are they all violating copyright protections by using this data as training data for the model? And it all hinges on this question of, of fair use, the doctrine of fair use and copyright and is, is model builders use of this AI 
does it fall under the fair use doctrine? I think that, so first of all, it's going to take years for this question to be fully worked out in U.S. courts. If I feel confident it will eventually go to the U.S. Supreme Court and that's how it will get resolved. I think it's an, an important enough issue. We'll go to the Supreme Court. It won't work its way through the courts all, all next year. It's going to take longer than that. But I think that next year, at least one court in the U.S., one lower court will rule that model builders use of internet data is a violation of copyright. And that's going to send a lot of people in spirals, panicking and freaking out about the business implications for model building companies. That won't be the, the final word again, you know, if, as everyone knows, if you lose a case in the lower court, you can appeal it and you right. can appeal it again. And eventually it goes to the U S Supreme court. But I do think there will be some, I think some case law will come down on that next year that will be less favorable to model builders. And I think that'll be an interesting dynamic to keep an eye on. Probably, so yeah. This probably won't be next year, but do you think this will ultimately go to the Supreme Court? I do. And you mentioned one more prediction that you had in, that was relevant to regulation. In Another kind of regulation related one is around, as folks are aware, a lot of the big cloud providers have been making large investments into AI startups that include those companies turning around and spending a lot of the money that they raise from the cloud on compute that the cloud provides people. You often hear this practice referred to as round tripping because the money is going out the door in the form of the cash is going out the door in the form of investment, but then coming back to the, to the cloud companies. I, I think this practice will come under a lot of regulatory scrutiny next year. And it, it just intuitively, it seems it's like a little bit too good to be true of a, of a tactic from an accounting perspective. I mean, it, it basically is a, is a method that lets a cloud provider turn cash on its balance sheet and, in like a zero risk way. And so it doesn't, it feels like, I mean, it seems esoteric, maybe in terms of accounting practices, but it has significant implications for how these companies get funded. I expect regulators will like come down on that practice and if not put a stop to it altogether, then at least like heavily limit the extent to which it happens. So I think that's another interesting regulatory dynamic to keep an eye on. Yeah. I, I totally agree with you. And I was actually thinking like, does next year bring actually a full M&A of one of the big models because the relationships between these independent, so-called independent cutting edge model makers are so complex, right? With the CSPs, whether it's Microsoft or OpenAI, where I think Europe has sort of, it's trying to figure out if they want to bring a case to the courts and, and stop it with both actually Amazon and Google. And I think the corporate ventures have been very, very active in AI this year. And I'm very curious what that means for next year as the numbers just get larger, right? And all of this, you could argue, is just a rounding error on their balance sheet. That may not be the case next year if, if these the value of these investments continue to go up and, and the dollars continue to go up. Yep. Second to last rapid fire question. Who are one or two of the biggest influences on your mental framework on AI? Okay, well, I'll try to keep this one to actually rapid fire. I know that this <laughs> one puts a very rapid. I really like going back and reading thinkers on AI from earlier eras, earlier decades, because the fact is like the, the technologies and methods that are dominant in AI today are new and are constantly being innovated on. But a lot of the mm -hmm. more fundamental questions, conceptual issues around like what would it mean for a machine to have intelligence? What is intelligence? 
what implications does that have for humanity? These are questions that folks have been grappling with since the since AI became a real academic discipline in the in the 1950s. And you know, I think a lot of the most powerful writing on this was done years or decades ago. So Douglas Hofstadter is one author who I really like. He wrote a book called Girdle Escher Bach, which is kind of a famous, iconic, like cult classic book in AI. He wrote it in the 70s, but it's still, I think, very salient in terms of thinking about AI and the implications of AI and you know, how AI might come about. Marvin Minsky wrote a lot. And Ian, I mean, a lot like Marvin Minsky, for instance, I think his, a lot of his technical views proved to be very wrong. Like he, he was a longtime skeptic of neural networks and didn't think they would work. And, but still, I think a lot of how, like the, the conceptual ways he thought about AI are, are fascinating. He wrote a book called The Society of Mind that I think has a lot of great insights in, into it. Even Alan Turing, I mean, I don't, I don't think Turing wrote any books that I'm aware of, but a couple of the papers that he wrote, like the, the 1950 paper where he starts out with like, I want to examine the question, can, can machines think? And he introduces the concept of the Turing test, which he calls the imitation game. I think that paper has a ton of fascinating insights. And he was like many, many decades ahead of his time in terms of how he was thinking about machines and in thoughts. So anyway, I, I think there's a lot to be learned from some of these older school writers who were writing before the current deep learning era, but thinking about a lot of the same issues. I love it. I'll have to link those in, in the show notes. And last rapid fire question. My normal rapid, rapid fire question is, what is one thing that you believe strongly about the world of AI that you think most people would disagree with you on? In light of this episode, would love to hear what your hottest take for 2024 is in terms of a prediction. Here's one from me that maybe controversial on the AI crowd, I, I will predict that, you know, this, it almost became like a common theme or trope this year that like, like the crypto to AI pipeline. And there are all these VCs, especially, but also founders and commentators and others who were super excited about crypto and all kind of aggressively rebranded themselves as AI people this year as AI got hot. I'm going to predict that in 2024, some of that like herd mentality and like trend follower behavior is actually going to shift from AI back to crypto. As I'm sure a lot of people have been tracked, like Bitcoin is really starting to rip. Crypto is just unbelievably cyclical industry and it has up, crazy ups and crazy downs, but it will come back up. I know it's like out of fashion right now for the most part, but it will be back and it will be buzzy again. And I don't know for sure that 2024 is the year, maybe 2025, but it feels like 2024 may be the year that crypto becomes buzzy again. And I, I do think that, you know, right now it's hard to imagine if VC is getting excited about it other than AI, but a year is a long time. And, you know, for better or worse, I think a lot of VCs, like their quote convictions can be incredibly short-lived. And we saw a lot of that with them pouring into AI over the past year. And I, I can see a lot of them moving on. I'll admit like some of this is probably hopeful thinking on my part, because I, I personally would like it if there was like a little bit less right. and noise and like over exuberance around AI. But that that's my hot take that the crypto will come back into fashion. And thankfully, hopefully some of the crazy hype around AI will be diverted in that direction. I love it. That was actually not a take I was expecting. I agree with you. I do think, I mean, we've already started to see some of the VCs start to announce very buzzy crypto funding rounds. And so 
that might be a, a very good signal that your 2024 prediction is going to come true. Rob, thank you so much for, for spending the time. Really enjoyed the conversation. I know we covered a lot of different topics. I think if 2023 is any signal as to how AI is going to unfold, I think 2024 is going to be insane. And so I really appreciate you taking the time to, to come on and speak with me. It was great to chat. Thanks for having me.